earlier this week I was uh, listening to the radio uh, in my car, and uh, it was a news program, and they interviewed a man who uh, had been, you know, dealing with an issue that kind of plagued him for his entire life. He, he grew up in the, the 80s when uh, the AIDS epidemic really kind of came on the scene, and media outlets were really uh, promoting it and, uh, you know, talking about it, and there was, you know, you know some hype about it about the dangers of what HIV was and, and how it related to, to AIDS. And uh, even though he was uh, a boy at the time, um, he was really struck by fear in his life about contracting the disease. And he would read up about it, about how, to con- you, know, how you get it and how you don't get it. And it was just always something that in the back of his mind, out of all the fears and phobias that, that you could pick, that, that this was kind of his fear. Uh, he gave an example um, that it went to the extreme measures that if he cut himself, um, like one example he said is, I was playing soccer and I fell and skinned my knee. And I thought, what if uh, on the ground there was blood that was infected by HIV? You know, did, could it get in my, my bloodstream and could I be infected? And he started kind of, you know, getting a little bit scared and, and panicked. And so he would, they had an HIV hotline, uh, I guess, in the city that he lived in. And so he called it up and explained it to them. And they said, well, statistically speaking, it's very low. It's probably, you know, on the chance of 0%, you get it. So you're fine. And so he'd hang up the phone and then he would think, well, maybe I didn't explain it right. Or you know, maybe I should get a second opinion. Or maybe I should... So he would call back. And it ended up becoming a problem where I guess he said he would have to disguise his voice because he called so many times. He didn't, you know, he didn't want... He wanted to make sure he was getting sound advice and they weren't recognizing him. And uh, this is something that he said that for the next 30 years um, that has been a struggle. And he, he's a, apparently a science writer, and he knows the science literature, but it's just something that he would say he has this compulsive disorder, this fear, this phobia, this whatever, um, that he just can't get out of his mind. And as I was listening to that, sometimes we think, you know, um, you know that's a pretty extreme form, and he would he would certainly agree with that, that he, he suffers from this extreme for, form of kind of phobia, that in it, you kind of see things that maybe in your own life you kind of think about. Like, if you ever get to, like, the edge of a, you know, I don't know, a cliff or a balcony or something, do you ever think, like, what if I just tripped and fell and, you know, fell over the side? Um, you know, especially if you're holding a baby, you know, you're, you give that like two foot buffer zone, you know, you're like, ah, not even, not even going to get close. And, and so sometimes we just kind of play out in our mind some of these things, but we kind of just then blow them off as like, oh, that's something that, that we just deal with. But it's something that, you know, highlights really things that, um, you know, can be pushed to the extreme level, but things that we deal with in our, our, our life. There, there are these what ifs, there are these, you know, what if this happened, these scenarios we could play out. Because our life is, um, is really filled with uncertainties. We don't know what is going to happen in the future. And so sometimes you could say, if I asked you, what are things that, that you're afraid of? You know, we don't even like the word fear or afraid. You might say, well, I'm concerned about some things. Or every once in a while I think about some things. But however you want to talk about it, there are things that we just don't know what's going to happen. And some of these things are minor, and we can just kind of, kind of brush off. But some of these things are major. Some of these things aren't, aren't really close to home. They're external, the things that you read in the news. Um, and maybe some of the news events are more you know, personal. There's things that are happening in the Middle East. There's uh, you know, 
uh, terrorists that are harming people. Um, there are diseases that outbreak every once in a while, and, and we get these kind of fears or concerns that, that get kind of hyped up. Uh, there are countries that are invading other countries, and, and we kind of hear those things, and we, and we say, like, is that something that could happen to us, or do we have to worry about that? Uh, but then there are things that we deal with on an internal level that we all face in some sort of measure at some point in our life. I mean, there's always a health concern that, that we have, and some are minor, and then some are major. We have financial concerns, uh, job concerns. We have relational issues. Um, you know, and some, some issues, again, are just you know, kind of far away, but then others are real close to home. And some, thankfully, we, we don't even know about. Things that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not good that we don't know about it. But you can go on and on about all the things that we could think about and the what-ifs and, and everything about that. But the things that we do know, there are some measures that we can kind of put in place and think about, and look at some historical examples. And that's what I want to do today, is we're going to look at an example in Scripture that, honestly, I, I always am fascinated about. And we're going to, we're going to look in Second Chronicles 32. The, the um, historical count, I know it's not very often that you go to Second Chronicles, but I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And um, you go to Isaiah, you could go to Second Kings, they're all the same event that are related in these three different places, and it shows that the the authors of Scripture felt it was necessary to describe and to go to into some detail. And we're going to see how the nation of Judah faced an enemy that threatened them um, and how we can kind of face the same threats uh, and face the same enemies that we, we encounter in our lives. So at this point in Scripture, at Second Chronicles 32, hopefully you found it, um, Israel and Judah, just kind of in the nation of Israel and what's going on, remember Israel and Judah have split. It uh, was a happy marriage for a little bit, there were only three kings, and then they split into Israel with ten tribes, and Judah in the south with two tribes, and uh, that existed for about 300 years, um, and that's kind of where we're at today. And as you're reading First or Second Kings or First or Second Chronicles, you're going to get a list of all of these kings who ruled over these nations. I mean, that's a long period of time for different people to rule over these two different nations. And they really describe the kings in two different ways. That a king who did right in the sight of God, or a king who did evil in the sight of God. When we get to 2 Chronicles 32, we're going to find a king that did right in the sight of God. So we're not going to get it very far before I have to stop and pull us back. But in chapter 32, verse 1, we read, After these things and these acts of faithfulness. Okay, so we've got to pause there and say, what are these things and what are these acts of faithfulness? Well, we're not going to read all three chapters that precede 2 Chronicles 32. But in those three chapters, and really a little bit before that, we read about um, a king named Hezekiah who uh, made reforms to worship in the nation of Judah. Now, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, was described at the end of his life as a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he turned Judah into uh, worshiping idols. And this wasn't new. There's definitely kings that turned the nation to idols and some that turned them back to worshiping God. And that's really what the prophets were speaking about. And Isaiah would speak a lot during Ahaz's time and Hezekiah's time. And you can read an account of this in Isaiah, but we're not there in Isaiah. Um, and so Ahaz set up these uh, altars all over, the, all over the nation of Judah and different places to worship different gods. 
And so that was the main evil that he did in this time. And there was a lot of other kings that did the same. Well, Hezekiah, when he takes over, he doesn't follow in the footsteps of his father. And he wants to make things right. The temple hasn't been used. I mean, for Jews, it was, we don't worship on all these different altars. We worship at one altar in one place. We have a temple and we have a corporate worship when we come together and we praise our one true God, not many gods that the other nations follow after. And so he made repairs to the temple in Jerusalem, fixed some of the doors so actually they would work, made some repairs, had it consecrated, because after you do work, you have to consecrate the temple, and then restored it for worship again. I mean, during the consecration of the temple alone, uh, he had 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep offered, which is a pretty big barbecue um, in order to uh, consecrate something. After that, he said, okay, not only that, we're going to reinstitute the main worship that we do, our main festival that we Um, do every year, which is really reminding us about the faithfulness of God. And that was reinstituting the Passover. So he went out to the people in Judah and sent letters to even people up in Israel and said, come and celebrate the Passover with us. We're going to do it. We're going to do it again and do it right. And uh, uh, second King says that um, he encountered those that laughed and mocked him uh, because they're like, why are you doing that? Obviously that's so passe to, you know, to, to worship one God alone. But he persisted, and during that Passover, they sacrificed 2,000 bulls and 17,000 sheep. And so again, kind of this big event trying to refocus Judah back to the people, the blue screen of death. Um, so, so he had altars, uh, he had the altars that his dad and some previous kings that were erected to foreign gods, he smashed them. And he reinstituted the priests and the Levites to come work again in the temple. And so the last verse of chapter 31 says, And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Okay, so these are the acts that Hezekiah did. So you got this man who's faithfully worshiping God. And something happens as king, as ruler. He was faithful to God, but there's this nearby kingdom that he's not faithful to. And their name is Assyria. Um, His dad uh, had paid tribute to this growing empire, and we'll talk about them in depth, um, and he refused to do so. He's not going to pay the same tribute that his dad offered. And so we pick up and say, after these things, uh, the faithfulness of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. Okay, so who is this guy, Sennacherib? All right, Um, and what's with Assyria? Okay, well, really, for Judah, Assyria was a threat. And so, as we're going to look at all the things that we encounter, the the obstacles and threats that we face on a day-to-day life, I'm going to show kind of what Hezekiah, how he faced them, and... um, and then how we can kind of parallel some of those things. And the first thing is really identify the threat. Okay? Identify what the threat is. And for Judah, the threat was Assyria. All right, so how many of you remember Assyria from your history class? All of you. Awesome. So I appreciate that. So uh, I, I taught world history last year, but I just even remember when I went to seminary, so in graduate work, I, I just, like, I didn't, I guess I just didn't learn about Assyria or didn't know who they were. And so some of you may be in that camp. 
Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, you know, a lot of detail. And being, you know, a former history teacher, um, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to learn some history. So who was Assyria? Well, if you just do a kind of a search in Scripture, um, Assyria is mentioned over 130 times uh, in Scripture, all the way back into Genesis and then all the way through Zechariah. So they're not just some, you know, nation out of many nations that you see you know, that are listed in the Bible. But our account is taking place in 701 BC. So there won't be a quiz, but just so you know. And this threat that's looming large in the eyes of of Judah is the Assyrian Empire. Well, 20 years earlier, um, they swept through and they actually took, took out northern Israel. And they took their 10 tribes of Israel captive. So really the people that were left over to come to the Passover were just the remnant of people that were not fully deported. And so the Assyrians, they were ruthless fighters known for their brutality. And they came from the heart of Mesopotamia in the area of modern-day Iraq. So Assyria was just one of many city-states that kind of popped up. And there's other city-states like Babylon and Ur, where Abraham was from. And they kind of are between this band of rivers, these little cities that pop up. And for each of these cities, they had their own... They, well, they all worshipped multiple gods. They worshipped whatever god that they wanted on a particular day. But they had for each city a god of their city. Okay? And um, for Assyria, that god was Asher. And that's where they get their name. They were... You know, Asher worshippers, so they were Asherians, Assyrians, that's how we get it. And Asher was the ruler of heaven. But in any case, in 911, so this is 200 years back, one of their kings decides, you know what would be great? It'd be great if we just took out all the other cities and ruled over them for ourselves. And for those kings of those little city-states, Babylon had done that before and you know, several hundred years before that. But for those kings, they, they're, they're making a judgment saying, our God is ruling over all of the world. So they have in their mind world domination. And this is kind of one of the first times you see in the history of the world where people are like, hey, let's not only rule over this area, but let's rule over everything. And let's see if we can do it. And so that's what they go and they try to do. Okay, so that's in 900 BC, you know, uh, BC, and so they start taking over all of Mesopotamia. So I don't think I have a, had a map, but uh, maybe it'll pop up later. And so they're uh, taking over little city-states, and uh, they're mo- making their way west towards Israel. I know you're trying to think of the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia, you know. Maybe you're shuddering because of all those names in your time in history. But um, about 50 years, they conquer Mesopotamia. They start moving west, and they get a coalition. There's a coalition of nations that come together, Egypt and uh, Israel and Judah. You know, they're, they're not fighting against each other at this time, and Syria and some others, and they stop Assyria's advance, okay? And so Syria is halted from kind of coming over and taking over the West, just for a moment. Well, 50 years later, though, Israel and Damascus get the idea that they're going to um, come and they're going uh, to go try to um, uh, beat up on their little brother to the south, Judah. And so Israel and Damascus start, and they're going to come, and they're going to fight Judah. And Judah actually relies on Assyria to come to their aid. So Assyria comes and actually fights for Judah. And so Judah and Assyria are somewhat allies, but they're separate. Okay, well, Israel, because tried to fight Judah, 
They're doing something they shouldn't do. Assyria says, all right, you're going to pay us a lot of money for that. So they're paying this heavy toll, and eventually they say, we can't do it anymore. We, 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 we refuse. And so in 724, Assyria comes in. They lay siege around Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. And for three years, they wait them out. And eventually, Assyria, or I'm sorry, uh, Samaria crumbles and says, we can't take it. We give up. And Assyria says, okay, we're going to deport everybody. And 722 is the date that is kind of established for the downfall of Israel. Okay, so that's 20 years before Hezekiah's king. It would be in his lifetime. He would know about this event to the northern neighbors up there. Okay, so he knows who the Assyrians are. Now, when the Assyrians came in to take out a nation, you know, they wanted to just make it a vassal state, which is just something like to say, we just want your money. You know, we'll leave you alone. We're the bully on the playground. We won't beat you up as long as you pay us. And so, um, so most did so. But if they refused, people refused, they would come in, and if they weren't a city, you know, a, a walled city, they would just come in and destroy everything and wipe them out. Say, see, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't mess with Assyria. You shouldn't refuse to pay us. If they did encounter a city with walls around it, they would uh, try to set up battering rams and destroy it. But if they couldn't, they would just sit and wait. And they would put a war of attrition. And once the people gave up, they would implement their, their tactic of deportation. And they would take the people and they would transport them to other places in the nation and uh, separate them out. So when Israel fell, they went to all these places. They went to Mesopotamia. They went to uh, Asia Minor and some other places that Assyria kind of ruled over. And so they spread out, and then they actually import people, Assyrians, into the kingdom. So really a revolt can't start up, and it kind of dilutes the people, and they're more like Assyrians. Okay, so now you've got Assyrians living right around Judah. You've got all these nations and city-states that are falling to Assyria, but Judah hasn't done there yet. There's somewhat, Ahaz was somewhat an ally of Assyria. Now, Assyria, they weren't compassionate conquerors, right? They were that bully on the playground. And if you did resist, we would either beat you up, you know, we would take your stuff, or we, we would also set to make an example out of you. And uh, various archaeological drawings, or they call them reliefs, they show pictures of the Assyrians erecting long wooden stakes with bodies at the top of them that they would put outside the gate as a spectacle for all to see. And to say, if you want this to happen to you, then you don't do what we ask. Okay, if you refuse to pay what we ask of you, you're going to be like these people. There, there are picture, other pictures that show stacks of heads lined up like totem poles as artwork. There's disembodied bodies, piles of other parts just strewn about. And this was in their artwork. This is actually, you'll see, one is in the, the throne room of, um, of a king that we'll talk about in a little bit. And this is the kind of artwork that you know, sends chills down your spine, but that's just something that they just line their, their hallways and their throne rooms with. So almost worse than just even seeing those pictures, because they're not too detailed. The artwork wasn't too detailed at that time. But you hear different descriptions of the sag- savagery of the Assyrians. And in one case, you've got a guy named King Ashurbanipal II. He reigned from 883 to 859, or like a little bit before that Battle of Karkar. But this is some of the things that he said. He said, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me, and I draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile, and some I erected on stakes upon the pile, and I flayed many right through my land, and draped their skins over the walls. It's uh, pretty, pretty bad. 
Another one says, I felled 50 of their fighting men with the sword and 200 captives from them and defeated them on the plains. And with their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off their heads of their figures and, or their fighters and built there a tower with them. And I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. All right, one more, just so we know who we're dealing with. In strife and conflict, I besieged and I conquered the city, and I felled 3,000 of their fighting men. I captured many troops alive, and I cut off some of their arms and hands, and cut off others their nose, ears, and extremities. And I gouged out their eyes of many troops. I made one pile of living and one of heads, and I hung their heads on trees around the city. Okay, sorry to be a little graphic this morning, but sometimes we just talk about Assyrians being bad guys. And there are, there are pictures that I won't show you, but that they're... But they, they, were, they were extremely brutal and ruthless, and they liked to promote it. I mean, sometimes we hear of, you know, um, civil rights abuses that happen in, other, in places in other nations, and they're like, kind of like disturbing to us. They usually seem to be happening on like a small scale, and they're usually not promoted. I mean, every once in a while there'll be like a video that, you know, a news organization will have of some terrorist beheading somebody. But, but this is what they did. And then they made artwork about it, and then they put it all around them in their throne rooms and in their hallways of their palaces. And this is how they lived, and this is what they promoted, and this is what they loved. And they like to glorify in that, because if you resisted, pick one of any of the many ways that we can torture you, but we will do so. So for most of us, we don't encounter that type of aggression, right? But... You know, every once in a while, we may see that, maybe in the Middle East, you know. And really, there's actually a terrorist group that is operating in the area of Nineveh, which was their capital, interestingly, uh, that you're starting to see kind of some of those things displayed, but not to the scale that the Assyrians had made it, you know, uh, during, you know, that period. But the brutality of the Assyrians was enough to make Jonah, right? He didn't even want to go to them. Jonah was asked, go preach to the the Ninevites, and he's like, "Uh uh-uh. I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, this is God giving him a message, and he's their prophet. And uh, God has to, you know, have a fish swallow him and spit him up on land. And finally he's like, okay, I'll go. And so he goes, and then they actually repent. And he's like, man, I can't believe they repented. Because in his heart and his mind, they don't deserve salvation. They were so brutal and so bad. And so that's really a great, great book to preach from, but that's another day. So... I kind of want to identify some, a couple themes that we go, that we go out uh, that, as we just kind of go through some of the, the, the text. And one is, you know, certainly we should keep things in perspective. I mean, I know my first point was identify the threat to your life. And your threat is probably not Assyrian, you know, torture and rule or deportation. But it doesn't mean that we don't kind of encounter threats in the same way, where we feel paralyzed or we feel like, you know, um, there are difficulties that we face. There are times that we have a health issue, and it could be life or death. And there are the things that we don't know how things are going to play out. So one thing, let's just kind of keep things in perspective. I'm not trying to make a parallel where what we read here, here's kind of an extreme, but extreme in a lot of cases. But let's get kind, of, kind of keep those things in perspective. But we do have threats that fa- we face. We do have things that burden us and things that we kind of battle. And if we even look in the world around us, there are things that just kind of um, we see that uh, go against 
what we believe as Christians. That it seems like more in our culture is going to the other side than rallying with us. And so there are threats, though, that we may face that could be on a scale of the Assyrians, but we're not there yet, thank the Lord. But secondly, I want us to remind that that even if we have a difficulty, as bad as the Assyrians, that we have a God who can do what appears to be the impossible. And that's really what we'll end with. But first is we want to identify the threat, what's threatening us, and once we've identified that, then we can do some things about it. Well, for Judah, Assyria was their threat, and it was an external threat. Scripture tells us that the invasion by Assyria was actually brought about by God because of the sinfulness of past kings. He said he was a, that Assyria was a tool of judgment. Okay, So it's God bringing Assyria to do some of these things. Okay? Well, once the threat's identified, what do you do about it? Well, one thing is you can prepare for something. You can prepare for whatever it is that causes you discomfort or causes you discouragement. And in this case, this is what Hezekiah did. So now we'll pick up in the text a little bit quicker. Verse 2 says, And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem... He planned with his officers and mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs in the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria be, uh, come and find much water? Well, Hezekiah, he was a wise king, and he knew that a siege meant cutting off the water supply. Now, Jerusalem is a walled city, so a wall is all around the city, and we're going to see that he actually builds up some of the walls. But one of the problems is is that the water is outside the city. So it doesn't do any good if the water is outside the city. So he says, well, we're not going to let the Assyrians just drink the water and have a plentiful supply, so we're going to stop it up. And what isn't actually in the text is something that Hezekiah does, is that he has two crews um, go from the spring that's outside one of the walls to another crew that's inside the walls, and they dig through the, the solid bedrock with pickaxes. This stone just kind of looked cavern. And they hit with pickaxes until they meet in the center. And it was pretty much an engineering marvel. For 1,700 feet, they dug through this t- tunnel, met in the middle, and the water flowed. 60 feet underground, and the water still flows today. Pretty amazing. But this is, that's not even in the text. It's called Hezekiah's Water Tunnel, and you can find that in archaeological tools. But in any case, he stops up the water, and he actually redirects it inside, uh, inside the city walls. So now they have water, and don't have to worry about being cut off in that manner. And then in verse 5 says, He set to work resolutely and built up all the walls, and was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it, he built another wall, and he strengthened the Milo. They're like kind of stone-filled terraces that kind of stop people from running and taking battering rams through uh, in the city of David. So the, there's a, in the 70s, a wall was uncovered uh, in Jerusalem that they attribute to Hezekiah. It was 10 feet tall at the time and 23 feet thick. So the battering rams of Assyria were, by even, even uh, ancient times, weren't really that great. They weren't skilled in making those battering rams. But to hit a 23-foot wall, they're not going to do anything. So the walls are heavily defended. They have water inside. And so they're doing some things to kind of prepare themselves for the attack. 
And he set out his he set combat commanders over the people, gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them saying, "Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and the hordes that with him. With his arm is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles." So he gathers them together, prepares for war, and he gives them a pep talk. As far as how we can relate that to our life, once you've identified the threat, there are practical things that you can do. And it might be spiritually. You might need to prepare yourself for whatever road is ahead. Because really, when, you should be doing that anyway. Whenever you encounter some sort of difficulty, our response to that, which we'll see kind of what the response is, especially in trusting the Lord, should be more of a reaction. It should be habitual. It should be like a reflex Something bad happens, go to the Lord. But there are also just practical things that you can do in your own life. It might be financial, it might be whatever, but you can prepare your house for whatever storm is about to hit. There's nowhere in Scripture that just says, you know, rely on God for everything. You don't need to do anything. And actually, that would be an unbiblical way. We're given certain resources and stewardship, and so we do that. So we prepare for whatever threat faces us. And it might be physical, it might be ideological, it might be spiritual. But once you've assessed it, you can prepare for it. And so Hezekiah had a little bit of a time as the Assyrians made their way to them. Verse 9 says, After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces. Now Lachish was uh, the second most fortified city in Judah. Uh, behind Jerusalem had stone walls. And uh, there's you know, heavy archaeological evidence today of the Assyrian onslaught of that. They actually built a big siege ramp, which they would throw piles of rocks uh, until it built up to the height of the wall. So you can imagine if there's a 10-foot wall, you, this huge ramp, and uh, they're under fire. But that's what they would do. And then once they had this uh, ramp, they could just run the guys over. Because if you put ladders up, ladders could be pushed over. Um, so it still exists even today, and it's, it's kind of impressive. But that was what was happening at Lachish. So they're kind of under siege and surrounded. And so Sennacherib sends, um, you know, sends an envoy while he's there. And so, uh, and actually while he's in Lachish, Hezekiah sees that Lachish is surrounded. It's the second, you know, biggest city. Um, and so he sends, uh, he actually sends tribute to Sennacherib and says, hey, here's some money. Maybe you could just go away. And you can read about that in Second Kings, but it says there that he gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord, and Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that he had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So remember, he reinstituted temple worship, fixed the doors, and then now he's taking the gold off and giving it away because he just wants Assyria to go away. And so, not, uh, and so Sennacherib says, all right, I'll take your money, but I'm not stopping. And so he ends, up, uh, he ends up continuing with the siege uh, at Lachish. And so he actually, after Lachish, he ends up destroying it. And he comes and he wrecks this 80-foot relief in his throne room of, you know, people being killed and plundering and whatever. But that's like what surrounds, and it's in the British Museum of History today, of that event that we see in Scripture. So kind of interesting. So before the battle entered, Sennacherib sends his servants to Hezekiah, and he's, you know, he's got his money, but he's continuing to battle. And this is what he says to him in verse 10. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says to them, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you? 
that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? The generals of Sennacherib, they came to Jerusalem to hopefully get a surrender, right? And they want to kind of instill fear. And they're like, hey, don't you know what happens when Assyria comes in and lays siege to a city, right? Don't you remember what happened up in Israel? And so at this point, Assyria has a fairly good track record of wiping out cities and making people regret their decisions. And he reminds them, that what happens when a city is under siege is that they deteriorate slowly. And it actually is written in another account, kind of the specifics, but he says, remember, food runs out, and water runs out, and then you kind of resort to human wastes, and then you kind of turn on each other, and some people resort to cannibalism, and then you give up, and then we torture you, and then we take you away. Do you really want to go through that? Do you want to go through that pain? Right? But that's the tactic of the enemy, because they kind of feed on the what-ifs. The what-ifs. What if this happened? You know, you may lose. We're, we're pretty good. You're probably going to lose. And so whatever threat you're facing, you could give in to the what-ifs, but you really need to try to separate what's factually true from the what-ifs. And I would say those are kind of the lies that you, know, are, you tell yourself or even people tell you. And it's not to say that the fears aren't real. I mean, this happened 20 years beforehand in Israel. But are they going to happen? You know, and maybe the question is, you know, if you deal with some difficulty, will this, th- will this threat set me back financially? And the answer could be possibly. I mean, may very well so. But will this set me back? Will I lose my salvation over it? And the answer is never. Will I lose my life? Will, could I possibly die and lose my life? And the answer is, sure, you may. But will I lose my soul? And if you're in Christ, the answer is no. So we do need to separate, even though we're facing difficulties, what's true, what's possible, and even what's not true. Because really, Jerusalem, they had a lot, of, lot to fear, right? I mean, the Assyrians, they were doing a good job of wiping out all the cities, and even Lachish fell... <laughs> And so he needed to figure out, what am I going to do? Well, Sennacherib's men continue. Verse 12, Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem? Before one altar you shall worship, and on it you shall burn your sacrifices. So uh, interestingly here is that the generals of Sennacherib are like, didn't Hezekiah destroy all the altars? He's like crippling you to worship your God. Because in their minds, you worship on all these different altars to all these different gods. And so now you're just relying on one God. You're putting all your eggs in one basket and worshiping that God alone. They, don't, they didn't know that, that that's what God requires. You worship one God alone, and he actually encourages the corporate worship of the people. But we see that they actually know what's going on in the countryside, but they think it's actually a, a threat, and so they start to speak that. And maybe the people that hear this are like, yeah, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. You know, maybe they start feeding into some of these lies. Verse 13, Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of other nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods and those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. 
Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his hand from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? If we're talking God against God, the Assyrians are almost 100%. Maybe had a loss somewhere that's not recorded. But... So they were like, you really wanted to take this, this shot. But that ends up being the challenge. You know, it's not, hey, we have more guys than you. It's, you really think your God is going to beat our God. And they lay it out on the line. And they've had 200 years of relatively good success. Right? That end of verse 15. The Lord God would be another, uh, or sorry, how much less will your God deliver you out of my hand, right? When we start giving in to kind of the what-ifs, we've already given over the battle to them. But that is the battle when we face the what-ifs. Is our God able to, to get us through this? Not is he, but is he able? We need to echo Psalm 56 when we read, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So point number four is trust the Lord through the threat. Trust the Lord through the threat. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. Right? In the longer account, you know, Sennacherib says, who do you trust? Do you trust Egypt? This is, so if you, if you were to read in uh, Isaiah, he says, who, do you trust Egypt? you trust your God? Are you trusting in yourself? What is it that you trust in as you're coming up against me? And so that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What, is, what are we trusting in? Because Hezekiah could, trust, could have trusted in his, his springs, right? He did prepare. He could have trusted in all the preparations for battle. But we need to do what Hezekiah did, and we need to go to the Lord. Um, in, in the version Isaiah, Isaiah 36, is, uh, um, Hezekiah goes, he tears his clothes once he hears the report from his men. He goes and seeks repentance. And then he goes and asks uh, Judah, uh, their prophet Isaiah, what they should do next. And uh, Isaiah says, Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So Isaiah says, don't worry about it. Wouldn't it be great if we had a prophet? You're like, so should I take this job? And he's like, mm-mm. Should I marry her? You're like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you know. But honestly, we don't need a personal prophet, right? Because we, we have the scripture. We have the prophets, and we have more than the prophets, right? We have words like Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we have James who says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, or Hebrews 12, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. They all speak about heartache, but they all talk about a God who loves his people. And so we can find comfort in that. 
So his servants, so um, Hezekiah goes and he tells uh, uh, Isaiah, Isaiah gives him the word from uh, the Lord and says, don't worry about it. At this time, the messengers go back and they say, Hezekiah didn't say a word. His men didn't say anything. And that's what Hezekiah told his men. And so Sennacherib sends them back. He had already just taken uh, Lachish and went to another city and uh, sends them back. And they say pretty much the same thing. Right? Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Right? They're just saying the same thing. Your God will not deliver you. Your God will not help you. Your God does not care for you. Your God has abandoned you. Right? And that's the message that we need to counter as well. And they even shouted it so all the people on the wall could hear it. Not just the uh, leaders, Hezekiah's representatives. To instill fear in the city, like maybe they're right, maybe we should give in. They wanted everybody to hear their message of doom. And when we talk about trusting in the Lord, I mean, it's easy to say, but, you know, when there's extreme pain, it needs to be, again, a reflex about the things that we're experiencing. In his book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges says there's three truths we must believe if we're able to trust, in adver- trust him in adversity. One, that God is completely sovereign. Two, that God is infinite in wisdom. And three, that God is perfect in love. Completely sovereign, completely able, completely capable of handling the situation. That he is wise. He's smarter than you or me or any other doctor or financial advisor or whoever. That he knows what is best for us. And three, not only that he knows it, but he's loving and caring and compassionate. And that he desires our good. And those three things will get us through whatever we face. And so the next thing we need to do is what Hezekiah did next is that he sought him in prayer. He consulted his prophet and then just said, Lord, and you can read this in in the account in Isaiah, he says, Lord, The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their land and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And he pleaded to God, please let everyone know that you are the only true God and that what I was doing before, you support and that you... I might, have, I might have, you know, relied on Egypt. I might have taken the gold from the temple. But please, Lord, I'm repenting and help me out. So verse 21, this is what we read. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. And that's actually an understatement because if you read in Isaiah or 2 Kings, they give the number. They say, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 185,000 just gone. I mean, it wasn't like a battle that you see in Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. You know, the last two hours, it was just like, done. It was almost anticlimactic. But, but God, that's how he works. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's no contest when God is involved. And he says, we read... Um, that Sennacherib, because he was given such a military blow, that he returned with shame of face to his own land. And historically speaking, it's really interesting that um, Sennacherib, you know, that Isaiah prophesied that he will go back to where he came from and die by the sword. And 20 years later, 
His sons kill him while he's worshiping in his temple to his god, Asher. I mean, he taunted the Israelites, will your God save you? His God didn't even save him. Historically, his sons killed him because he overpassed one of the older sons for a younger son, and the older son did not like it. So, um, so we see that Sennacherib trusts in a God that has no power and no reality. And, see, I don't know if I can do it, but what's next? Oops. So this is kind of interesting, like a map of all of where Assyria ruled. And so the green, the dark, and the light is where they ruled except Judah. They never got Judah. They went away, and and it wouldn't be until the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians that they were able to capture Judah. But this is a historical picture that out of all the places that they toppled and all the mighty nations, they could not get Jerusalem And Judah never fell to them. And so the last point that I want to make is that we need to remember the Lord's faithfulness for future threats. And even this, verse 22, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations and onward. So remember that this victory was clearly won for Jerusalem, King Hezekiah, and most importantly, their God. Now certainly this is a miraculous event. I mean, in the history of of Israel and Judah, you know, you don't have too many of these. And so they're ones to kind of put away for future times. I mean, Hezekiah would face difficulty like very shortly after, and his life would be almost cut short because of his sickness. And then we actually find Hezekiah does something... um, uh, ignorant, and he, um, he actually causes the downfall of Judah, but that's not going to happen for another, uh, I don't know, 100 years um, to the Babylonians. So you can read about that on your own time. So, you know, I don't want to say that you do these things and the God acts in this way, but I'm saying that you do these things knowing that God could act in this way paired up with the fact that God is sovereign, that God is wise, and that God is loving, and so capable of doing what we couldn't even imagine, and so much more. So whatever threat we face, whatever comes our way, we need to identify the threat, prepare for the threat, don't believe the lies of the threat, trust in the Lord through the threat, and remember the Lord's faithfulness for future threats. Because guess what? Unless that threat's your last threat, you will get another threat. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are sovereign and good and wise and loving and kind and all of these things that just sum you up. And we praise you that those that follow you and put their trust in you have confidence that you are a rock and defender and shield. And Lord, I pray for those that um, maybe don't know you or unsure or or questioning, Lord, that um, they ask what they, they put their trust in. It is either you that we can find confidence in, or it is ultimately nothing. And Lord, I pray that you will work in all of our hearts to trust you when we face difficult times, because certainly difficult times will be faced in the future. And remember how you have been faithful in so many ways in the past. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.